So today then we begin this new book, The Prophet's Prayer Described by Ash-Shaykh Al-Athaymeen, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And it's a book which is basically a book of fiqh. And it goes through the topics that are related to the prayer. The topics that are linked to the issue of the prayer. Some details about when the prayer was obligated Details about how to actually pray, breaks it all down from the beginning to the end. Some details about how to get focus in the prayer, how to stop the whisperings of the shaitan in the prayer. So all of these various types of topics are mentioned as we go throughout this book. In the introduction, Shaykh Al-Ithameen, Rahimahullah Ta'ala mentions... He says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has obligated various obligations upon the servants. And those servants of His who fulfill those obligations, then Allah gives them a reward, a great reward for the righteous and pious servants who fulfill the obligations that Allah has placed upon us. And as for those who oppose the command of Allah, those who oppose the revelation and do not practice the Qur'an and the Sunnah, then there is a torment and a punishment upon them. And Allah has mentioned to us, that this religion has been completed. The religion is complete. Allah completed every aspect of it. That is told to us in the Quran. الْيَوْمَ أَكْمَلْتُ لَكُمْ دِينَكُمْ وَأَتْمَمْتُ عَلَيْكُمْ نِعْمَتِي وَرَضِيتُ لَكُمُ الْإِسْلَامَ دِينًا Allah says in the Quran, that on this day I have completed for you, your religion, and that I have perfected or completed my blessing upon you, and I am pleased with Islam as your religion. Islam is the religion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with for His servants. In the Qur'an Allah said, وَمَنْ يَبْتَغِي غَيْرَ الْإِسْلَامِ دِينًا فَلَنْ يُقْبَلَ مِنْهُ Whomsoever seeks a religion other than Islam, then it will be never accepted from him. It will never be accepted from him. In other ayat it mentions, إِنَّ الدِّينَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ الْإِسْلَامِ That indeed the religion with Allah is Islam. So the shaykh says, أُذَكِّرُكُمْ نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي دِينِ الْإِسْلَامِ 
I remind you about the blessing of Allah upon you regarding the religion of Islam, that Allah has guided you to Islam, and how many people are there out there who have become misguided and they are not upon the religion of Islam. So this is a great blessing for you, that Allah has guided you to this religion, guided you to the truth, guided you to that which pleases Him, guided you onto the path to paradise. That is a great blessing that every person needs to thank Allah for. It is from the greatest of the blessings that you have been guided. <coughs> Allah mentions in the, in the hadith, Qudsi, كُلُّكُمْ ضَالٌ إِلَّا مَنْ هَدَيْتُ فَاسْتَهْدُونِي أَهْدِكُمْ All of you are misguided except for the ones who I guide. So seek your guidance from me and I will guide you. Seek your guidance from me, from Allah, and Allah will guide you. So guidance is not in your hands. Guidance isn't something you bring about for yourself. Rather, guidance that you've been given, then it's a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the Quran, Allah mentions, وَإِن تَعُدُّوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ لَا تَحْصُوهَا If you try to count the number of blessings Allah has placed upon you, you would never be able to count them. You would never be able to enumerate them. Such is the great number of the blessings of Allah upon you. So in the introduction, the shaykh, he highlights the importance of realizing this, realizing what a great blessing it is you've been guided to Islam, realizing the importance of therefore sticking to this religion and not falling away from it and not becoming negligent of it. Because a person who falls away from it and becomes negligent of it, then you don't know what your end result may be. The hadith the Prophet ﷺ said, وَإِنَّ الْعَبْدَ لَيَعْمَلُ بِعَمَلِ أَهْلِ الْجَنَّةِ حَتَّى مَا يَكُونُ بَيْنَهَا وَبَيْنَهُ إِلَّا ذِرَاعَ فَيَسْبِقُ عَلَيْهِ الْكِتَابِ فَيَعْمَلُ بِعَمَلِ أَهْلِ النَّارِ فَيَدْخُلُهَا Maybe a person does righteous deeds all of his life. But then at the end of his life, after having done all of those righteous deeds, the likes of that which would enter you into paradise, at the end of his life he ends up doing something in the opposite direction ends up doing some shirk at the end of his life, falling away from the religion, and as a consequence, ends up in the hellfire. Even though all of his life prior to that may be upon goodness. So a person always asks Allah to keep him firm. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ used to make the dua, يَا مُقَلِّبَ الْقُلُوبِ ثَبِّتْ قَلْبِ عَلَى دِينِكَ Oh Allah, the one who turns the hearts of the people, <coughs> changes the hearts of the people, Keep my heart firm upon your religion. Because a person who does not remain firm upon the religion, falls away from the religion, and ends up, in some kufr, in some shirk, then your end abode is the hellfire forever. So it's important to realize what a great blessing it is you've been guided, and it's important to realize that you need to work hard and strive to ensure that you remain upon that way and stick onto the Qur'an and the Sunnah. <coughs> so in that religion of Islam then, of course it is built upon Tawheed, the fundamental and the principle of Tawheed, 
But then after that, the second pillar is the pillar of the prayer. So that is what we're going to discuss in these lessons, the prayer. Firstly, what does the word salah in Arabic actually mean? Because prayer in Arabic, it is called salah. So what does the word salah actually mean in the Arabic language? In the Arabic language, it means to supplicate, to supplicate, as-salah, fil-lugha, ad-du'a, to supplicate. In the Qur'an, it is mentioned, وَصَلِّ عَلَيْهِمْ Surah Tawbah 103. Pray upon them. What it actually means in that ayah is supplicate for them. So salah, the word salah, linguistically it refers to supplication. To supplicate for a person or to supplicate for someone. In the hadith it mentions, إِذَا دُعِيَ أَحَدُكُمْ if any of you is invited, فَلْيُجِبْ <coughs> Then answer, meaning accept the invitation. فَإِنْ كَانَ صَائِمًا And if he happened to be fasting, فَلْيُصَلِّ Then make dua for the one who invited you. You're not going to eat because you're fasting, but you've been invited. So what to do then? At least make dua for the one who invited you. But what does the word in the hadith say? Pray. If you're fasting and you get invited, then pray for the person. Pray for the person meaning what? Supplicate for him, make dua for him. So linguistically, the meaning of the word salah, it means to make dua, to supplicate. Of course, Islamically speaking, when we talk about salah, prayer, we're not just talking about dua generally. We're talking about a very particular type of dua, a very specific dua, the dua that is in the form of the prayer as we know it. So, Islamically speaking, if somebody says to you, what is the prayer? What is salah? Linguistically, we've told you now, linguistically it means to supplicate. Islamically though, what does it mean? Islamically, salah is ibadah. That aqwal wa af'al makhsusa. Muftataha bit takbir, muhtatama bit taslim. It is an act of worship which incorporates statements and actions or rather incorporates specific statements and specific actions, which are opened up by the first initial takbir, Allahu Akbar, and they are closed off with the final taslim, Assalamu Alaikum, Assalamu Alaikum. <coughs> Prayer, Islamically, is a worship which has very specific statements during it, and very specific actions during it, all of which begin with the opening takbir, Allahu Akbar, 
and close off with the final taslim. Assalamu alaikum, assalamu alaikum. That is what we're referring to when we talk about the prayer. What are these very specific statements and very specific actions that it incorporates? That is exactly what we're going to discuss as we go through. That is exactly what we're going to talk about. <coughs> what are these exact specific statements you got to make during the prayer? What are these specific actions you have to do during the prayer? That is what we will discuss as we go along. <coughs> so this definition of the prayer then, it incorporates of course the five daily prayers. The five daily prayers, <coughs> they are from them. The Jum'ah prayer is in it. The Janaza prayer is in it. All of these things are included in these prayers. The next section then, after having understood generally the meaning of the word prayer, the meaning of the word salah, linguistically <coughs> means to supplicate, Islamically it means an act of worship that has very specific statements during it, and very specific actions during it, all of which begin with the opening takbir, and end with the final taslim. Next section here now is, when was this prayer obligated? Because we know when Islam was revealed, it wasn't all revealed in one night. It wasn't all revealed in one go. It was revealed slowly over a period of years, or over a period of 23 years. Islam was revealed stage by stage. It wasn't all revealed in one go, this is Islam, this is what you all have to do. It was in stages. So Tawheed, the issues of Tawheed and Shirk, that was the first stage. Then after that, years later, the prayer was revealed. Then the zakat and the fasting and the hajj and all of these things came in stages. They didn't all come in one go, these are your five pillars, this is what you have to do. The pillars came in stages, one pillar, then a few years later, another pillar, a few years, another pillar, until when the Prophet died, all of the pillars and all of the Islam and everything had finally been revealed <coughs> and concluded. So the question is then, if Islam was revealed over that period of time during the life of the Prophet, ﷺ, at what stage, what year, when exactly was the prayer Revealed and legislated as an obligation. Anybody? In the tenth year of prophethood. So the Prophet ﷺ became a prophet at what age? At the age of 40. So you're saying when he was approximately 50. Ten years after the Prophet ﷺ became a prophet. He became a prophet at the age of 40 when Jibreel came to him with the revelation of the Qur'an. So 10 years he was a prophet. 10 years he was calling to Islam generally, to Tawheed, etc. Then you're saying the prayer was revealed. <coughs> so when was the Hijrah? When did the Muslims leave Mecca and go to Medina? When did the Hijrah occur? 13 years after the prophethood. The prophethood began when the Prophet ﷺ was 40 years old. The hijrah occurred when he was approximately 53, after 13 years in Mecca. The prayer, some of the scholars they say, it was revealed 
only a year before that hijrah. Some scholars say though, it was three years before the hijrah. Some of them say it was five years before the hijrah. So the point is, from what is known, it was at some stage very close to prior to the hijrah. Approximately three years or so. Approximately two, three years before the hijrah, the obligation of the prayer came down that it is now obligatory upon the Muslims to have to pray five times a day. When, so that's when it occurred, (coughs) two or three years before the hijrah. Where did it occur? How did it occur? On the night journey. When the Prophet ﷺ was taken up, taken up to the heavens, on the night known as the night of Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, he was taken up all the way to the highest of heavens. And that is the night when he was taken up there, that Allah spoke to the Prophet ﷺ directly. The Prophet ﷺ didn't see Allah that night, but Allah spoke to him. And on that night is when Allah commanded the Prophet ﷺ about these prayers. So this is the hadith we'll have a look at now. It mentions that initially on that night, when the Prophet ﷺ was taken up to the heavens, Allah commanded him with the prayer. That ruling came now on that night that the Muslims have to pray. How many prayers was the original ruling? 50, five zero. The original ruling was 50 prayers. So, in the hadith it mentions that that ruling originally was 50 prayers. Allah told the Prophet ﷺ, your ummah, the Muslims, they have to pray 50 prayers every day and night, every 24 hours. So the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ got that order, he'd been given that command, and he was then returning from the top heaven, he was now returning. As he was returning, he passed by the sixth heaven, seven heavens. As he was returning, he passed by the sixth heaven, where he came across Musa Musa He was returning and he came across, this is in Bukhari, everything. He was coming down and he came past the sixth heaven where he came across Musa alayhi salam. So Musa alayhi salam said to him, Bima umirta, what have you been commanded with? What is the command you were given? What is the order you were given? So the Prophet sallallahu tells him, umirtu, that I've been commanded with 50, 5-0 prayers every day, every 24 hours. That is the command I've been given for the ummah. So Musa alayhi salam replied and said to him, Inna ummataka la Musa alayhi salam said to Muhammad sallallahu Your ummah, your ummah, your people, they will not be able to do 50 prayers every day. Your ummah, your people will not be able to do 50 prayers every day. Inni wallahi qad jarrabtu nasa qablak. 
Musa alayhi salam tells the Prophet Muhammad I've already been before. My time has already come and gone. And I already experienced the people and the ummah, my ummah. Banu Israel were his ummah. He said, I have already been, my time has already gone and I already experienced my people. So I've got experience from them. I got experience from them already. وَعَالَجْتُ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ أَشَدَّ الْمُعَالَجَةِ And I had to deal with my people and interact with them and had to push them to the best of the ability. And I'm telling you, from my experience of them, that your ummah similarly, from my experience, will not be able to do 50 prayers every day. So go back. Go back and ask Allah to make it less. Go back and request from Allah to make the ruling less. Your ummah won't be able to do it. I have experience of my people before. Your people will be similar. They won't be able to do it. So the Prophet says, he goes back. He says, I returned. Prophet returns back to Allah, goes back again. And asks Allah for some reduction. Asks Allah for some reduction. And so Allah reduces it. By how many? By 10. So now it becomes 40 prayers every day and night, every 24 hours. So then as the Prophet ﷺ is returning, passes by Musa ﷺ again. So Musa ﷺ says, so what happened? What have we been commanded with now? The Prophet Muhammad ﷺ says, 40 prayers. Musa ﷺ says to him the same again. I experienced my people before you. And I've seen them and I've interacted with my people at that time. And your people similar. They won't be able to do 40 prayers every day. Go back and ask for less. So again the Prophet ﷺ goes back and asks Allah for some reduction. And it is reduced by another 10. So it becomes 30 prayers every day. Again as the Prophet is returning, Musa ﷺ asks him what happened now. He says 30 prayers. Musa ﷺ says, I experienced my people before you. 30 prayers your ummah won't be able to do it every day. Go back and ask Allah for evenness. So the Prophet ﷺ goes back and it becomes... 20. Again the same happens. He says he won't be able to do it. Go back. It becomes 10. Again Musa says even 10 prayers a day. Your people won't be able to do it. Go back and ask for less. It becomes 5. So then when it becomes 5. And the Prophet is coming back. And again the same happens again. And Musa asks and he tells him 5. Musa says even 5. Even 5. Go back and ask for some less. But then the Prophet ﷺ says, I have gone back so many times asking for reduction, reduced from 50 down to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10 to 5. I've been going back so many times to Allah to ask for reduction that I feel shy to return again now. And I will be happy with this ruling and I'll be content with this ruling and this will be the ruling. I feel shy to go back again now. After all of these times and all of these reductions. So in the end, the Prophet ﷺ didn't go back again to ask for reduction. And it was therefore left at that. Left at five prayers every day. But you still get the reward of 50 prayers. The reward is still the reward of 50 prayers. But you only have to pray five prayers every day and night. That is the story which is mentioned. It's in Bukhari. It's in Muslim. Absolutely authentic narration.
of what happened on that night and the conversation that occurred between Muhammad and Musa salam. That's how it initially began then. That is when the ruling was given, the Muslims now have to pray five prayers every day and night. And that was a couple of years or so, three years before the Hijrah. When the prayer was initially then established, the obligation was given five times a day now. It was given a bit different though to what it is now. How so? The first in a different direction. That's one point. That's one point. Initially when they used to pray, the Tibla, the direction where you face the prayer, wasn't towards the Kaaba in Mecca. Initially it used to be towards Jerusalem. That was the way the Muslims used to face the prayer. That was the original ruling. So that's one thing, fair enough. Initially the direction was a different direction. It was towards Jerusalem, then it changed to the Qibla, and that story, we'll get to it later. Something else that was different. Initially, the prayers were all half of what they are now. So Dhuhr right now is how many raka'at? Four. Initially, on that night when it was established, it was only established as two raka'at. Asar is how many now? It was originally actually only two. Maghrib is the odd number of the day, and that has remained as the odd number as it was. It was three then, it is three now. The odd number prayer of the day. Isha used to be two also. Fajr, it was two, it remained as two. It was two, and it remained as two. Those other prayers were all twos then. So initially you had two for Fajr, two for Dhuhr, two for Asr, three for Maghrib, two for Isha. That was the original schedule. Then, in the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, it highlights that after they made the hijrah, the ruling changed. And this used to happen. Like we said, Islam didn't all come down in one bulk. It came down in sections. And sometimes a ruling would come, and then maybe some years later, during the time, during the life of the Prophet ﷺ, maybe some years later, a new revelation would come now, saying that this is now the new revelation, the previous one is abrogated. So now, this new revelation came after the hijrah. Aisha radiallahu anha, she says, فُرِضَةِ الصَّلَاةِ رَكَعَتَيْنِ Initially, the prayer was in twos. Apart from Maghrib, that was always three. ثُمَّ هَاجَرَ النَّبِيُّ فَفُرِضَتْ أَرْبَعًا After the hijrah, when the Prophet ﷺ made the hijrah, it was then obligated as four. Four for Dhuhr, four for Asr, four for Isha. وَتُرِكَتْ صَلَاةُ السَّفَرَ عَلَى الْأُولَى However, the ruling was that if you are traveling, then you pray the original ruling. And the original one was twos. So when you're traveling, you pray how many for Dhuhr? Two. How many for Asr? Two. How many for Isha? Two. So if you're traveling away from home, the original ruling still applies to you. But if you're a resident, you're in your homeland, you're in your home city, you're in your place, then it's the new ruling four, 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 three for Maghrib, two for Fajr. So now the question may be, why was Maghrib never changed? As the scholars, they say, Maghrib is the odd number of the day, three. 
All the others are even number prayers. Maghrib was always the odd number prayer of the day. It remained as the odd number prayer of the day. Fajr, why was that not made into four? <coughs> Dhuhr, Asr, Isha, all got made into four. Why did Fajr never get made into four, remained as two? Exactly. The sunnah in Fajr prayer is to do what? When you recite Fatiha, after the Fatiha, you're supposed to recite long parts of the Qur'an. Fajr prayer is supposed to be read long. It's mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ, when he used to pray Fajr, he would recite between 60 and 100 ayahs of the Qur'an. 60 to 100 verses of the Qur'an in Fajr. So you're going to make it long. The Fajr prayer is supposed to be long. You don't just recite a small surah in the first one, small one in the second one and be done. Fajr, the sunnah is to pray it slow and long. So because it's prayed long anyway, it's equivalent to a four raka'ah prayer. Because you're only praying two raka'at, but you're making them long. So it's equivalent to your dhuhr prayer. How long you take to pray dhuhr, you should take the same kind of time, if not longer, for the fajr. It's equivalent to a four raka'ah prayer because you make it long. So that was never doubled, kept as two, but you make it long how you pray. So it's equivalent to a four raka'ah prayer anyway. That is regarding how the prayer was established, the story of Musa salam. How many raka'at were initially established for each prayer, which was twos, except for Maghrib, which was always three. That after the hijrah, the ruling changed and it became fours, except Fajr, remained as two, but you pray long. Then the only thing which remains now is, if we're saying that this night of Al-Isra wal Mi'raj, the night of ascension, when the Prophet ﷺ went up to the heavens and that prayer was legislated, that was just three years before the hijrah. Ten years after the prophethood began. So in the first ten years of prophethood, was there no prayer and the Muslims weren't praying then? There was no such thing as prayer. In the first ten years of Islam starting, there was no prayer. The call to Tawheed, no doubt, but was there prayer? Are we saying there was no prayer? Muslims didn't pray for the first 10 years. Only after 10 years, then this ruling happened, this night happened, and then the prayer started. Is that what we're saying? Did they supplicate, but there was no form of prayer? Supplication was done. Mm-hmm. The Prophet used to pray in the So, scholars, they have spoken about this and they've mentioned basically you should not understand from this that in the first 10 years there was no prayer. There was. It just wasn't like this. Five prayers per day, obligated, duhur, fajr, asr. It wasn't like that. But there was a form of prayer before this. Some of the scholars say night prayer, the tahajjud, they used to do that. But there wasn't five obligatory prayers of the day. But they used to do a night prayer. Some of them say there used to be like two prayers every day. So the scholars do say there used to be prayer. They used to pray. There's even a narration, a hadith, that on one occasion one of the mushrikeen saw the Prophet 
go out to the Kaaba and start praying. And then he saw a woman come out and line up behind the Prophet ﷺ and start praying behind him. And he saw a small boy come out and line up next to the Prophet ﷺ and start praying. So a congregation of three happened. In that narration, it says that this mushrik says, talking to his friend, he says, that's Muhammad, that's Khadija, and that's Ali. And he says to him, I don't know anybody else on the earth who's on the same religion as those three. So they were the only three Muslims at the time. That must have been right at the beginning of Islam. And they were praying. So there was some sort of prayer going on even in those days. Right at the beginning when there was only Muhammad Khadija anha, Ali anhu. Three of them. The mushrik in that narration mentions about the mushrikin talking. And he says, he says to his friend, they're the only three on the face of the earth I know who are on this religion of theirs. There was no other Muslims yet. And they were praying. He says, I saw him go out and the three of them, they were at the Kaaba praying. So there was some type of prayer going on. It just wasn't fixed like this in the five prayers, Dhuhr, Asad, Maghrib, etc. It wasn't like this schedule, but there was some type of prayer Muslims did know about prayer beforehand as well, in some other different way. Then the next section we move on to is the importance of this prayer. We'll briefly mention some of the virtues or the importances of this prayer. Importance of this prayer. There's a, a few bullet points to highlight to you the importance of this prayer. Number one, that from the five pillars of Islam, it is the highest pillar only second to La ilaha illallah itself. La ilaha illallah, the tawheed, the shahada is the first pillar. After that, there is nothing more important or higher than the prayer. That shows you the importance of the prayer. It is second only to the shahada itself. That indicates how important this prayer must be. That it is the second pillar of Islam. Another point, bullet point number two you could say. To summarize... That this is an action, a worship, that if a person was to abandon it, they become a kafir. If a person didn't bother praying, paying his zakah, he knows he's got to pay it, he's got the money, but he, he just doesn't pay his zakah. Does the person become a kafir? No. Person doesn't bother fasting Ramadan. He knows he's got to do it, but he doesn't do it. Kafir or not? No, he's a sinner. Person got money, but he doesn't go do Hajj. He's got the ability, but he doesn't go do it. Sinner. But you're not going to say he's a kafir. A person doesn't pray. Now you can say kafir. That shows you how prayer is different to the others. It's different to zakat, it's different to fasting, it's different to even hajj. You could abandon hajj, zakat, fasting. Person could be lazy, could be stingy, greedy, doesn't do the zakat, doesn't do the hajj, doesn't do those things. Wouldn't make him a kafir. But a person abandons the prayer, that can make you a kafir. That shows you prayer is something different on a different level. So that is something very important, shows you the importance of the prayer. That if you were to abandon it, the ruling of you being a kafir could be applied to you. 
Whereas if you didn't do the other things, you don't fast, you can't say you're a kafir, you're a sinner. You don't go do hajj even though you got the ability of money, you're a sinner. You don't give your zakat, you're a sinner. But you don't pray. Now it's more than just being a sinner, you could be termed as a kafir. So that shows to you how important the prayer is again. Shows to you the level of the prayer and the status of the prayer. Another bullet point showing the importance of the prayer. Normally, when the religion was being revealed and the Prophet ﷺ was being taught all of the revelation, how was he being taught? How did the Quran come to him? How did the Sunnah come to him? How? Jibreel alayhi salam used to bring it from Allah to Muhammad on this earth. Jibreel used to come with the revelation from Allah, with the rulings from Allah, bring them, teach them to the Prophet He would then teach his companions and so on and so on until we're sitting here today with these books. The prayer though was not obligated in the same way as other obligations. Other obligations, Jibreel would bring them from Allah down to the earth and pass them over to the Prophet ﷺ, teach him. The prayer, is that what Jibreel did? With the prayer, the opposite occurred. What is the opposite? Instead of Jibreel bringing, bringing that revelation from Allah down to the earth and teaching the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ was taken from the earth up to the heavens to receive it. That shows you this is something different. All the other obligations, they were just sent with Jibreel. Sent with Jibreel, he would come to the earth and teach the Prophet ﷺ. Prayer, no. Opposite. Prophet ﷺ was taken up to the heavens to receive this obligation. Shows you the great importance and the level of the prayer. It wasn't just sent down as normal. The Prophet was taken up to get that obligation. So this shows you that the prayer is something special and different as well. Another point you can add to that, if Jibreel was the one who normally used to bring down the revelations to the Prophet ﷺ, that means the Prophet ﷺ used to get all of the revelation via Jibreel, not directly from Allah, via Jibreel. Allah would give Jibreel that revelation, Jibreel would then come and pass that on and teach the Prophet ﷺ. So all of that revelation was coming to the Prophet ﷺ via Jibreel. The prayer... The Prophet ﷺ received this obligation directly from Allah. Allah spoke to the Prophet ﷺ, told him about this prayer. This was not via Jibreel, it came direct. That is something else which indicates to you this is something different, the prayer. It wasn't sent down via Jibreel, it was given directly. Allah spoke to Muhammad ﷺ. That shows you the importance of it too. Something else which shows you the great importance of the prayer is, that Allah loves this act of worship. Allah loves that you should do this act of worship. How do we know? Because initially, initially the ruling was going to be that you got to pray 50 prayers every day. Surely that must be something which Allah loves then. Allah loves that the servants should pray to Him. It was going to be 50 prayers every day. If you pray 50 prayers every day, let's say every prayer takes 15 minutes, that's 12 hours, more than 12 hours, half of your day. 50 prayers, every prayer 15 minutes, that's half of your day. Half of every day of your day, you would be in prayer. That shows that this must be an action, a worship that Allah loves. 
if it was going to be 50 prayers every day to begin with, must be a worship Allah loves. So that is something which shows you the status of the prayer too. Something else which shows you the status of the prayer is that you can't just go and pray. You need to be in preparation before you can pray. Preparation of purity. You have to have wudu before you can do this worship. You can't just go do it. Other worships, you can do them. You want to give charity? You don't have to go make wudu first before going and give charity to someone. You can just get your money out and give it, whether you got wudu or not. But prayer isn't one of those worships you can just do anytime, anywhere. You got to be upon purification first before you can do it. That shows you the status of the prayer. You can't just do it and you're not on purification. You got to go get purification first. Then you're allowed to go and pray. Showing you the level of the prayer. You can't just do it like that. You have to be upon purity to be able to do it. Those are some of the points that indicate, those seven, eight, nine bullet points there, that indicate to you the level of the prayer. The status of the prayer. Next time, we'll begin with the virtues of this prayer. What are the benefits of this prayer? What are the good things and the fruits and the virtues of this prayer? So that's where we'll begin with. We'll start talking about what benefit the prayer gives you. And we'll talk about various things. Allah told us the prayer takes away your minor sins. It helps you to uh, increase your iman, all types of things. So we'll mention all of those things that the prayer does. The chapter after that, which we'll do next week as well, is the chapter regarding the one who abandons the prayer then. A person who doesn't bother praying. What has been mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah about that type of person? What is the punishment that has been promised for the one who doesn't bother to pray? That chapter we'll do next time too. Uh, and uh, maybe, maybe if time allows that, we'll also begin into the actual conditions of the prayer. But certainly those first two chapters we'll start with next time. If there's any questions up to that so far, you can ask now. No, they have to start praying. They learn the Tawheed as they go along. Obviously, if they entered into Islam, they have to have understood a very basic level of what Tawheed is. That's how entering into Islam is. La ilaha illallah, the Shahada, means you've now understood what Tawheed is to the very basic level. So the very basic level of monotheism, they've understood. That's why they've entered into Islam. So now they continue to build upon that knowledge of Tawheed, but at the same time, you've got to tell them to start praying. And you gotta start teaching them straight away about wudu and prayer and those things from the beginning. You don't just say, okay, wait six months until you learn tawheed, then we'll teach you to pray. No. From the beginning, teach them those things as well. Wudu, prayer, tawheed, start with these things from the beginning. So slowly they start learning and, uh, and memorizing as much as they can, they can start praying properly soon then. It's permissible. As long as you are, we're going to get to that section as well. What are the types of clothes you have to wear to be able to pray? There's a chapter on that as well. The types of clothes you have to wear to pray. We'll get to it. But basically, yes, it's allowed. As long as it fulfills the conditions of covering your aura, etc., it is allowed. It's better that a person wears garments that are more pleasing 
because you should wear garments that are pleasing and adornment that are from your good garments when you pray. But it's allowed. It's allowed. There's no problem in the permissibility. Do you know the end of the section where Musa al-Islam and the Prophet sallam uh, at the end of the Prophet sallam said, I feel shy from returning too many times to my Lord. Mm. On that Jibrail said, descend in Allah's name. Mm. The Prophet sallam then walked while he was in the sacred mosque. It says in this book. So read out what it says. It says the Prophet sallam then woke up while he was in the sacred mosque, al-Masjid al-Haram. Mm. So that means the Prophet sallam... No, not necessarily, because al-Masjid al-Haram it refers to even his house where he was at the time. He, when he was taken up that night, where was he? From his, from his bed. Even though in the Quran it says he was taken up from Al-Masjid Al-Haram. So it doesn't necessitate the mosque. That's why some of the scholars say all of Mecca, the Haram area is Al-Masjid Al-Haram. 100,000 anywhere in the Haram area. Not the whole of Mecca, the Haram boundary area of Mecca. So it doesn't necessitate the mosque. What's the wording for the one who can't pronounce the Fatiha? We'll get to that as well. It's all in, it's all in. These chapters, you're going ahead. They're all going to come. Everything, all these details. The one who doesn't know the actual wording, it tells you the wording they can try and learn from the beginning. Then afterwards, they can try and learn all the rest of it. We'll get to all these chapters as we go along. Anything so far from today's sections? In, in the night journey, what the two ayahs from Surah Al-Baqarah revealed, the, the last two, I don't recall that. Hmm. Anything else then? So for the traveler, above as the Shah is hard, what is, how would you define a traveler? How many miles should he have? That's an issue which is differed about amongst the scholars. What defines travel? Some of the scholars, they say, as long as you leave the boundaries of your city, you're a traveler. So Leeds now, as soon as you get out to the outskirts of Leeds, and you travel out, keep going, you've left the outskirts of Leeds, the boundary of Leeds, you're a traveler. So that could be just maybe, what, 10 miles from here? 10, 15 miles from here, as soon as you get to the edge of Leeds, the boundary of Leeds, you're along the M62 now, that's it. Technically, you're a traveler. Some scholars say that. If you leave the buildings of your city... You go outside the boundaries of your city, you're a traveler. Other scholars say, no, it's not like that. Some scholars say it's uh, distances. There is a distance, some of the scholars mentioned too. That distance is approximately 49 miles, approximately 80 kilometers. That is something some scholars mentioned too, approximately 50 miles. Once you get to 50 miles and beyond, 49 miles and beyond, now you can consider yourself a traveler. Other scholars like Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, They've said it, it is defined by the tradition and the culture of the people. It is defined by the norms of the people. So for the people of Leeds, what is the norm in their minds of what traveling is? Like for example, if the people of Leeds travel from here to, what do you call it, Beeston, Beastly, what is it? Beeston, you go to Beeston. So do the people of Leeds from here, what's this area, Hare Hills? You go from Hare Hills to Beeston. Do the people of Leeds consider that? That's a long way, we're going to go on a journey, you've got to go tell your parents, check the oil in your car and everything, you're going all the way to Beeston. Do people think like that? Nobody thinks like that. So in the norm of the people, from here to Beeston is on a journey. 
You go from Leeds down to Birmingham. Now all of a sudden you're going to check your tire pressures, you're going to check your oil, you're going to check your water levels in your car because mentally the norm of the people dictates Birmingham is a journey. It's far. Got to prepare. In the norm of the people, Birmingham is a journey. From here to Manchester, possibly in the norm of the people, that is a journey. Here to Bradford, really, really, I don't think people are really going to say it's the norm of the people that they say we're going from Leeds to Bradford. You're going to go all the way to Bradford tomorrow. It's not like that. So really in the norm of the people, it's not considered a journey. In the norm and the culture of the people, here to Bradford is around the corner. They go every day there and back. So some of the scholars say you got to look at the norm and the culture of the people. And really norm and the culture of the people as well. Mostly you could probably estimate it works out roughly the same kind of distances. Once people start getting beyond 40, 50, 60 miles, you start thinking that's a bit far now. 20 miles, 30 miles, people do that around the corner, come back, no problem every day. So once you get to a certain level, normally the people in their minds start to think that's a bit far. And that's what scholars say a journey is. In the norm of the people, when you get to that certain level of traveling, certain level of distance, where people typically start thinking, now that's a bit far. Whatever that is, whatever the people think, fair enough. If the people of Leeds... It was a unanimous agreement with the people of Leeds. You go from here to Beeston, that's something long. That is, that's, that's a journey and a half. From here to Beeston, you've got to pack your sandwiches, everything, be careful, get your mobile charged. You're going all the way to Beeston. If that was, if that was the norm of the people here, then technically that could be considered as a journey. It is mentioned back in the day, some of the uh, Salaf and some of the times there, up to maybe 10 kilometers, which is what, 7, 8 miles, 5, 6, 7 miles. Some of them would consider it a journey. They would. So it all differs about that. But really that's probably the, the opinion that it's about the norm of the people. And normally the norm of the people is going to be 30, 40, 50 miles onwards. Now you start thinking it's a journey. So it's, it's just that. There's no real way to give it a de- defined answer. The only defined answer if you go on the, the number, scholars say 80 kilometers. If you're going to go on a number defined answer... It's 80 kilometers, some of them. 49 miles approximately. Uh, when the uh, Prophet uh, did the ascension, did, did he actually see Allah? No, he did not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on that night. They asked him, he said, Nuruhu hijab anna arahu. The covering of Allah was light. How could I see him? So the Prophet did not see Allah on that night. Aisha radiallahu anha said as well, anybody who claims the Prophet saw Allah on that night is lying. The Prophet did not see Allah on that night, but Allah spoke to him. In the hereafter, in the resurrection, in the afterlife, that's when Allah will be seen. So, we'll leave it on that for tonight then. Next week, what time is it, Shah? <laughs> so everybody should sign up to these uh, the Twitter accounts, the WhatsApp groups, whatever you have. Sign up to the Sabi Leads things, get the details so that you can keep up to date with timings. It's not a fixed timing, it depends on the prayer time, etc. So it, it fluctuates, might be 7, 7.30 one day, might be 7.50 one day, 8 o'clock one day. So you got to sign up to all the, the social media channels for, the, for, for this organization, for this da'wah, for these classes. So every week you get the update of exactly what time it's starting. You have like a WhatsApp group, a Telegram group and things. So come, come now and get the details and sign yourselves up. So then every week you're kept up to date with what's going on about the times because they do fluctuate. And now the clocks are going to change soon as well. It's going to fluctuate again. So sign up and get the details now as you go out from the brothers here. 
So every week you'll get your notification about what time the lesson is starting. Inshallah.